0: Oh, my God.
1: Good morning, Suze.
0: Hey, Jeffrey, I don't think we should start our podcast with good morning. We don't know what time people are going to be listening to it.
1: It's it's morning somewhere, isn't it? <laughs>
0: The, sure. sun is, the sun is
1: always <laughs> shining beautifully on some museum professional somewhere in this world
0: <laughs> that's that's definitely true well if that is uh, if that is you uh, this morning I hope that is a really great way to uh, kick off the day but uh, if you're listening to this at some other type of day good evening good night uh Whatever, whatever time of day it works for you. Yes, How are you definitely. doing, anyway, Jeffrey?
1: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you?
0: Uh, pretty good. Can't complain. Feeling good. Feeling pretty good. Getting uh, down
1: to the getting down to the end of it here.
0: Yeah, I'll say the the final weeks of pregnancy are a little less fun than some of the earlier ones, but yeah. that is fine.
1: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I uh, you know my my wife Jill. Um, Uh, We had our daughter uh, at the end of August, so she was uh, in the thick of it, in the heat of it, and um, while I cannot uh, empathize with you, I I understand um, what you're going through in some little bit. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I yeah, uh, I'm sure this is a thing that many people go through, and honestly, I've had a pretty easy pregnancy, so I have no complaints whatsoever. In fact, it's just really nice to be still at a point where I can say hop on a hop on a recording and make a podcast with you.
1: Yeah, definitely. So and w- and you know, we will put a contingency plan in place to make sure <laughs> listeners are uh, kept in the loop with the latest uh, developments. But um, <laughs> you know, w- so Sue's. Uh, considering uh, you know uh, where we are what, what are we talking about this month <laughs>
0: So we're talking about this idea of the gendered museum. Um, when I, when we were earlier planning this show, when we were talking about coming back with Museo Punks, I knew that my timeline was going to be somewhat interrupted around this time of year, and I thought it would, might be nice to treat it as a feature, not a bug, treating a pregnancy <laughs> as something uh, to be celebrated, but also to dig into some of the implications of... Things like uh, having children and what it does for a career and thinking about gender more broadly and its impact on the museum profession, its impact on um, on, on pay for the sector. We talk about um, pink-collar jobs, which are jobs that, you know, when, when more women become involved in a, in a sector or in a job, often the pay scale decreases for everyone. So really thinking about some of the implications of, of gender and the museum.
1: Yeah, and we have some really great guests uh, this episode. We have Anne Ackerson and Joan Baldwin, who um, you may know uh, write the the wonderful site, uh, Leadership Matters, um, who are also doing some interesting thinking and writing uh, on the topic of, of gender equity uh, and its relationship to museum leadership. Um, and then we're also gonna talk to Nikhil Trevetti. Um, And I think it's really important. um, Nikhil uh, does some really great work um, around social justice. Um, He runs... co-publishes uh, Visitors of Color uh, project, which some of our listeners may uh, be familiar with. But um, you're probably wondering, you know, why, why are we talking to a man about, gen- about gender equality? And, um, you know, Nikhil, I think, will have some interesting perspective on how men in the workplace and in, in the museum workplace can support um, and, and ef- help affect uh, some progress in, in this area.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Geoffrey. I think it's really important for us uh, as a sector, but really just as people, that we don't limit who can talk about um, things that are pertinent to the whole sector. And thinking about gender, thinking about equity and equality, we really shouldn't be limiting the conversations of who can participate just to um, those who most directly seem affected.
1: Yeah, dialogue from all angles uh, only can uh, help any situation. So um, let's let's get to the dialogue.
0: Anne Ackerson and Joan Baldwin write and publish Leadership Matters, a website focusing on twenty first century museum leadership. Anne served as director of several historic house museums and historical societies in central and eastern New York before becoming the director of the Museum Association of New York. She currently serves the Council of State Archivists as its executive director and is an independent consultant focusing on the organizational development issues of the smaller cultural institution. A Maryland native, Joan Baldwin served as director for several house museums, a staffer for the museum program at the New York State Council on the Arts, and director of the Education and Interpretation at Hancock Shaker Village. She met Anne Ackerson whilst working as a consultant, a friendship that led to a decade-long collaboration during Anne's tenure at the Museum Association of New York. In 2013, the pair published Leadership Matters, and this summer, Women in the Museum, Lessons from the Workplace. In addition, this year, they are co-teaching a course on museum leadership for Johns Hopkins University. Joan, and welcome to MuseoPunks, it is so wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thank you. It is lovely to talk to you. So, you've both done a lot of powerful writing on museum leadership, uh, whether on your blog or in your books. But one of the issues that continues to surface in your work and I think is really significant for us and what we're talking about today is this impo- is the importance of gender equity for the sector. Can you talk a little bit about why this has been such a focus for each of you?
2: Oh, aside from the fact that we're both women working in the field? <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that, uh, well, I'll, I'll go first. Um, I think in part it has to do with the fact that uh, well we are women working in the field but we have we have talked with a number of women a lot of women over the last ten years or so about their workplace issues Um, we started this conversation I think at the Museum Association of New York when we were looking at next-generation leadership and talking with men and women Um, and as time has gone by I think it has at, at least f- for me from my perspective the issue of gender equity has has grown in importance um, there's also a an interesting sort of connection back to the nineteen seventies uh, when women were we're talking about many of the same issues in the in the museum field as well as generally. Um, and here we find ourselves again 40 plus years later we're talking about these same issues. Uh, we're, we're looking at the social situation across our country and around the world and the issue of women in society and so I think it's just been kind of a a reoccurring and expanding story over over that time period that I've been involved in museums.
3: Yeah, and I would I would echo everything that Anne has said, although I mean I would add that when we were working on Leadership Matters, our first book, a number of the women that we spoke with said, boy, you know, when you get to the when you get to writing the book about women call me back cuz I have a lot to say and it was it was one of the things that kind of percolated along in the background and made us continue to talk and think about this whole topic and um, yeah I I, and it helps being a woman as well Um, but I do think it is the most the least talked about Subject in museums at the moment, and also the hottest topic. If you want yeah. to see a group of women's hair grow up, go on fire, start talking about this issue.
1: And, and rightfully so, um, you know, you both write a lot about um, the the pink collar workplace. And so, for listeners who may be hearing this term for the first time, could could you just explain that concept? Um, Uh, so we can kind of have a a, a shared understanding of that.
3: You want to go first, Dan?
2: No, you go ahead, John.
3: Okay. (laughs) Um, Pink collar is a term that I believe was coined about 10 years ago uh, in reference to fields that are traditionally dominated by women. It's not a particularly complementary term. Those fields are... uh, Typical are nursing, social work, libraries, and and now museums are almost there. Women are at 46.7 percent of the working population in museums. Um, the reason it's not a particularly kind appellation is that it refers to the fact that female-dominated workforces tend to be lower paid. Uh, and when 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 fields turn pink collar, the salary goes down. Counterintuitively, men that enter nursing tend to do better and make more, which right. is, you might
2: imagine, somewhat irritating.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And they get less, res- those fields often get less respect uh, because they're dominated by women. And so, um, and by less respect, I mean uh, they may not see the same levels of funding uh, or capital investment or, uh, that other fields might uh, receive. Um, in the political arena, they may be sidelined, those fields may be sidelined as well because. Uh, People, generally, men, don't respect those kind of fields as much as they respect the fields of manufacturing, the making of things, the production of of things to be sold in the marketplace, where many of the professions where women are clustered are serving professions. Um, and, they're, um, and so I think that's another reason why uh, they don't necessarily get the same kind of respect as other professions do. But we know, certainly we read about it every day in the newspaper, um, that uh, gender equity issues affect all industries, whether they're for-profit, non-profit, governmental. This is an issue that knows no industry bounds. And so it's, a, it's, um, it's something I think that women can They see; they can see the issues very easily, no matter what sector they're working in.
0: So this is—I've thought a lot about these issues around sort of the pink-collar workplace and its implications. I think a lot about it uh, when we think about museums and their embrace of, say, social media, because that tends to also be a very pink-collar part of the institution. There are aspects of the institution where we have, you know, women take on a more dominant role, and other parts of the museum world where where that that gender balance is is a little bit different i you're starting to talk about the implications both in terms of pay equity but also things like respect and the way an entire sector is thought of that's right what then do become sort of those longer-term implications for us as a sector? in terms of who we can attract, the stories we tell, all of those sorts of things, if we are, in fact, becoming increasingly female dominated?
2: Oh, That's a good question. Um,
0: You know, I think in the field, traditionally,
2: women have clustered in education, around education departments. Uh, They cluster in um, development departments. Interestingly, they cluster in human resource departments—the very departments that might be able to to kind of move the needle on some of these
0: issues. I, I think the reason I was interested in asking that question—I'm not sure that there are answers. So it, just as you as you speak through this topic, it makes me really think about, um, I suppose, some of the the other tensions that we have within the sector, whether it's tensions around being visitor-focused versus sort of custodian focus. Where, like, I, I wonder how many, many of these issues actually do relate to particular splits that start to happen within the sector and where there's sort of concentrations of people and energy.
3: Well, one of the things that struck us, and I'm not sure if this is exactly what where you're going with that, but is the way the museum world... It, it it treats it treats the outer community, the um, the people in front of the stage, the audience, very differently than it tends to treat the people backstage, in the workplace. And there's a real disconnect between this sort of embraceable you attitude toward the audience. You know, whatever we can do, we want a diverse audience. We want to serve a diverse audience. To the way we act in the, in the staff room. Right. Um, and, and I think that that disconnect is very troubling and, and it speaks also to these issues of diversity that, that there's a great deal of hand wringing about right now. But I will tell you that if what, if white women are paid badly and treated badly in the workplace. And many of them are that women of color and transgender women are treated even worse. Mm
1: -hmm. I think it's, I think it's interesting that, um, these, these conversations, especially on, you know, with, with you both and on your site are, are within the context of museum leadership. Um, and I'm wondering what, um, Actions museum directors or even boards might take to kind of begin to positively impact, you know, positively um, uh, erase that um, external internal barrier that you just spoke about, or mm-hmm. uh, positively impact um, equity within the sector. Are there mm-hmm. any things that they, mm-hmm. that could that could happen right now?
2: Mm-hmm. I, well, I think everything everything has to do with being more self-aware and we're, we're firm believers in the fact that that boards, museum boards, set the tone and the tenor for an institution, whether they do it intentionally or not. The fact is the way boards act and what they say permeates an institution, and uh, boards have to become more self-aware about these issues of gender and diversity, uh, access, the, the, the whole inclusivity conversation, as it were. and. And we found out in our research that um, most museum boards uh, tend to be, especially in really large institutions, tend to be white dominated by white males. And that the work of the board through its committee system tends to be divided or structured along the lines of gender. So that For example, the Finance Committee tends to be chaired by a man. The Fundraising Committee tends to be chaired by a woman. The Education Committee tends to be chaired by a woman. Strategic Planning often chaired by men. And on and on it goes. So that that structure by gender is in place at the highest level of the institution. And boards tend to hire directors, CEOs that um, I think often um, philosophically may align themselves uh, uh, with the thinking of a board, boards tend to hire people like themselves. I guess is what I'm trying to say, and and so then the per, so then the mindset, the thinking permeates even further through the institution. I think it's very difficult for a director who doesn't agree with the board on some of these issues to try and institute uh, more equity in the ranks of the institution without without getting some pushback from from a board that's more traditionally structured and is largely um, run by men and by white men at that.
3: And I I think the other issue is that there are many uh, museums, particularly the sort of small bigs, if you will, the the, um, small regional museums and small historical societies who don't who may not even have a personnel policy, but often don't have an HR department. And so when there are issues of um, implicit bias or um, benign bias, um, there's no place for people to go. Uh, And in fact, many of the women we've talked to were told, don't say anything. You know, it's better for your career if you just d- don't say anything, get over whatever happened to you and just go on. So I think, yes, Anne's right. It comes from the board first, but there needs to be some acknowledgement that your workforce is important and and they need a, a place to go and a policy to work under.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you're talking a little bit then about um, – a, a silencing and the need to speak out and I think that even the fact that you've both been advocating for a lot of this work f- throughout your career speaks to s- the importance of those voices but it makes me wonder whether there are issues that um, women uniquely face when taking on leadership roles in museums whether it is that board relationship or in fact whether it's just about finding um compatible boards and 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 find you know maybe that it's not Um, issues that are unique to women but issues unique to people who are trying to make change within the sector what what do you think in that context
2: oh I think being a woman and trying to make change can often be a double whammy uh uh, in some institutions, I mean, making change in and of itself is a difficult thing to do, whether you're a man or a woman, and um, and and then add the add the layer of being a woman on top of that, where often women are not respected, their their opinions are not respected, um, and they're not uh, taken seriously. Um, I think it makes their jobs even even more difficult, and um, and and I suppose that's probably one of the reasons why we we don't see more women in leadership positions, um, because it's just we know leadership is tough anyway, and uh, and if you want to be a change agent, it's going to be really difficult. And um, uh, I'm another let Joan. Well,
3: I was just going to add that on the other hand, a lot of women achieve their leadership position because they're given the troubled institution. And the hope is that they'll bring it around. Now, this is not a, none of these things are easy. And there's all sorts of reasons why that situation happens, but it happens a lot. Um, And uh, one of the things that Elaine Gurian said to me a long time ago was if you look across the sector in government obviously the the chief person is a is a political appointee and that is almost always a man the second in command is almost always a woman because that's the that's the position where things get done
2: hmm.
1: interesting so last last month you you wrote a post um, I, I believe it was, uh, was it Joan, um, published on um, baby boomers and (laughs) museum leadership positions retiring responsibly. Yeah. Do you see this oncoming wave of retirement or shift in generational leadership as potentially an opportunity to leapfrog some of these issues that currently exist within the sector?
3: Hmm. I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but one could only hope. I know there's a lot of anxious and cranky um, Gen Xers just waiting for my generation to step the heck out of the way, um, but uh, yes, I mean, I, I look, I welcome change whenever it comes. Um, I, I really think a lot of these issues n- need to be addressed by AM and ASLH at some sort of fundamental national level um, to try and force people into some behavior, but um, but yeah, I I, I I don't want I don't want to blame my generation for letting this happen though. I, sure. I don't want to leave anybody with that thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I you know, Ann and, Ann and I and a, and a lot of the people who are our age and our colleagues have done a lot to make change. Um, so I, I don't know. Ann, do you have any yeah. thoughts?
2: Well, I just want to add that um, I, I think, yeah, that there's an opportunity. There can be an opportunity as people retire out of the field um, for for new thinking to come forward. and um, and. As it should. Uh, what I'm thinking about, though, as you're talking, Joan, is um, that if the if boards of institutions aren't changing at the same rate as 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 people are retiring, um, we're still going to come up against some obstacles there. And and so, young younger generations just need to be aware. I, I, it goes back to my. my one of my earlier comments about we've got to be self-aware, more self-aware across the board on all of this. That goes for board members, that goes for staff leaders, and it goes for staff. And volunteers too, let's not forget them. And we just need to, you know, be more conscious about these issues and how they play out in organizations. And we need to talk about that a lot more than and we are talking about that a lot more I think across the board you know there's this younger cohort um, in our field who's, who's just really has, has taken this notion of diversity and intersectionality and they're running with it and they're, they're talking and they're I think they're I think they're really making a, an impact and um, and that's the first time in a long long time that anyone has stepped forward Uh, that I can recall other than other than this band of women back in the early 1970s who formed a women's caucus at AAM and tried to get movement uh, along the lines of pay equity and access to promotion and and a few other things so this is it's it's wonderful it's happening I see this wonderful convergence and I think it's really uh, the time is ripe
1: yeah so um, one of my mantras here uh, and anyone who works with me will know I have many mantras, but one of them is that uh, real change happens when top-down leadership meets bottom-up momentum and squeezes yeah. in the middle mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Yes. yeah. And yeah. so, um, I'm wondering what, if anything, you have to say to the, to the, to the, 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 the younger cohort or the, or the bottom who are kind of starting this bottom up momentum and, and, any words of advice you might have um, to, uh, to, to keep that and grow that?
3: Yeah, women need to help women. I, I don't think we've been altogether great about that. And I think that that we, we need to be better mentors and advisors and friends and supporters to help other women enter this field, which has been traditionally male and hierarchical and I think the other thing is I think women really need to negotiate salary I think they need to get over the I am so glad you you want me feeling and say I'm really glad you want me but here's what
2: I need from you
3: and I think those two things will help a great deal
2: there have been some uh, studies done of uh, successful family-owned businesses. So this is in the f- in the for-profit sector, and in relation to gender, uh, one of th- a couple of a couple of characteristics of successful family-owned businesses have included the fact that there are um, there's a conscious effort uh, to to put women into um, the 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 work- the workforce, and move them up, and that those women become role models for other women in their companies. And um, role models, we think, are absolutely critical to helping young women coming into any field to see the pathway. And that's not to say they follow the same path, but they see that there's a path and they can choose to take it, they can choose to make their own path, but the point is that um, we, are a, we are a cohort, we're a big cohort in the museum field, and we, we need to watch out for each other and, and help to make those paths clear and, and, and help each other move along the pathways to success.
0: Well, then I guess the other question is, how do we not just help each other, um, how do not not just women helping each other, but how do we help each other as a whole sector? How do um, men be involved in this change? How do we uh, actually teach each other to be leaders and to work together to to make these changes? How do we do this as a sector?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um- don't, don't get us wrong, we, uh, we know that there are many men in our sector who really care about these issues and are very supportive and they want to, to help in any way that they can. Um, I think sector-wide, I guess Joan uh, talked about it a little bit, I think um, as it relates to our professional associations, uh, it would be helpful, I think, for, you know, some woman working in a in a museum somewhere in America to know that her professional associations are openly and strongly advocating for her and they're they're doing it uh, by way of talking about not only the the pay gap and setting some standards regarding uh, pay in this field but they're talking to and and educating boards of trustees they're educating staff current staff leaders directors of organizations in these issues and um, making it a part of the standards and best practices that museums aspire to um, I think that that's one way
3: yeah I, and I would just add you know issues like, uh, taking the bias out of hiring, which I think AAM deserves huge points for, sort of leading the charge on um, being conscious about workplace language and behavior that's offensive, um, providing regular gender equity training. I, I I think, you know, women are often afraid to speak up when something offensive has happened at work. And I think we all, everyone around the table, regardless of gender, needs to get past that and both stop the offensive behavior and be supportive of that person.
2: Uh, We found uh, at the uh, last AAM meeting, where uh, Joan and I uh, put together a panel uh, to talk about uh, to talk about gender issues in the museum field, um, we had a standing room only audience. Uh, what was it, Joan? About a hundred and 150 fifty fifty people, and there there were men in that audience, but the majority were women, and the and and it ranged. The women ranged uh, across the age range. Uh, there were women of color there, so it was a, it was di- a diverse audience. Um, we asked uh, the audience by a show of hands to uh, tell us uh, how many of them felt that they had been discriminated uh, against uh, in their careers uh, because of their gender, and three-quarters of the hands in the audience went up. And then we started to hear stories from you know, unco- unconscious bias, microaggressions to outright felonies. Uh, that our session could have lasted the entire morning. Women want an opportunity, and men too, I would say, we, we, they need an opportunity to come together, to talk, to share their stories, to um, get advice as well as support and and we don't provide that really in any kind of well we don't we don't provide it in any sort of formal way at any of our annual meetings or major gatherings of our professional associations that's one small way we could we could maybe help um, is, is give people an opportunity to share their story
1: Well. Well, you know, we clearly have a lot of work to do in the sector, but I think conversations like this, um, open dialogue, um, uh, are are definitely making helping make some some progress along the way. So we really appreciate you both taking the time to to speak with us today um, about this. Um, if listeners want to learn more from you or um, connect with you both in any way, what's the best way for them to do that?
2: I think probably uh, through our blog, Leadership Matters 1213, um, and the attendant email there, which is leadershipmatters1213 at gmail.com. Did you have a?
3: Yeah, well, and I would also say just briefly we've started an organization called Gender Equity in Museums, and it has its own, um, its own webpage, gender equity museums, all one word, dot com, and that page has a wealth of information about these issues.
1: Great. We'll drop links to both of, uh, to all of that in, in the show notes, Joan and Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. It was really, really great.
3: Thank, thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: Nikhil Trivedi is an application developer at a museum in Chicago and a social justice activist. His activism work focuses on ending rape culture and patriarchy through his role as a volunteer educator for rape victim advocates. He is also a regular contributor at the Inclusium, co-creator of visitorsofcolor.tumblr.com, t- of and his writing has been featured in Model View Culture and Forward Museums. You will also find him playing his guitar and sitar, composing noise, hiking, Making herbal medicines and drinking warm glasses of chai on cold winter nights. Nikhil, thanks so much for being a guest this this month. Of course, thanks so much for having me. We're so glad that that you're a guest uh, for this episode. But um, Nikhil, when we first approached you to to be a guest, um, talking about um, the concept of the gendered museum, you were a bit hesitant. Um, And conveying you know some some just hesitation about being a guest why was that
4: well I mean I was super honored that you guys asked me to be on your show I'm a big fan of your work um, and I was excited about the opportunity to be on your show particularly about this topic but it felt weird being a man talking about gender oppression because I know it's critical for men to be active in dismantling patriarchy, but this is generally a space that I'm careful and thoughtful about the space that I take up, and I usually step back to give room to voices that are typically silenced by sexism and male domination. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I just kind of wanted to say right at the top that as a cisgender, straight-ish man, I want to speak to other men from my own experience through our conversation today. And I feel like I can share my observations about gender oppression as it's targeted towards women, femme, and gender nonconforming people, but I can't and I won't speak for those people or their experiences. Um, and uh, and also, just um, one last thing: I don't think there's anything that I'm going to say that probably hasn't already been said by a, a woman, or femme, or gender nonconforming person before me. Um, so I just want to recognize that.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, when we when Jeffrey and I were first talking about this uh, this show and, and this concept of the gendered museum, um, for me, I really wanted to dig into this subject in a, in a bigger way. So not just talking about gender oppression, although that is obviously part of that. And and the other guests that we've got on this episode, we we dig into that a little bit. Um, but for me, it was actually really important that we talk about the implications of gender on our institutions and and how we think about them, but also what it means for, for us, say, if we have in an imbalanced sector, what that does to our, say, to our pay as a sector, what that does to um, even the sorts of stories we tell and how we relate to audiences. So for me, it was actually really important that we... We're not just relegating this as sort of the um, the women's issue show or, or, or something that was sort of limited. It was actually trying to get to some of these bigger discussions. So yes, to talk to um, oppression as it relates to gender and that's definitely not just around women either and that was important as well that we have multiple voices but also that we can get to, I think... Um, some of the bigger questions and 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 one of the reasons I was really interested in having you is you've done a lot of work yourself around gender constructs and around contemporary notions of masculinity and particularly as they relate to technology and we've recently we uh witnessed some big conversations around this topic being around say controversial um the 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 google anti-diversity manifesto which came about a couple of weeks ago it was made public in August which really argued against the organization's diversity initiatives and it was ultimately leading the male author of the piece to be fired and this is, this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, is, is you've done a lot of thinking about this area yourself within your own work, and it makes me really wonder how you see gender and masculinity playing into technology work, uh, yourself as, as a technologist, um, and then we'll, we'll discuss, we'll go a little bit further into how that starts to relate to the museum.
4: Yeah, I mean, that Google letter, damn!
0: <laughs> I, yeah,
4: that was crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's so many pieces of that letter that we could probably have lengthy conversations about. And I feel like we can't really talk about the gender piece of it, like you, like you mentioned um, just now, Suze, without talking about the race component about, uh, of it, right? Right. I mean, I feel like the guy who wrote the letter probably had cousins who didn't speak up at Thanksgiving last year. You know what I mean? And, you know, if this past year, you know, white folks have been thinking about, like, how can they get involved in anti-racist work, like, talk to your cousins before they write a letter like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, try to get through to your cousins. It'll probably take, you know, a, a long time. Uh, you know, no change is really um, really happens between people and within ourselves without... It being a long, lengthy process in close relation to the people that we're close to, so it, it'll often feel like we're not getting through to folks. It'll feel like you know hopeless and all that stuff. But like, we just have to keep trying to get through to people. Otherwise, who's gonna? Mm-hmm.
1: Nikhil, what do you, what do you think it is about the the technology? aspect of this you know i mean google's just one example but you know you can you can basically look across the landscape of 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 technology startups like uber right like is there an epidemic you think like in relating to technology work
4: well i mean if we if we look at
1: some of the things that are happening
4: in the tech sector through the lens of power Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's not something that's just isolated to technology. right? A lot of um, economic power is uh, located in a lot of large tech companies and that results in a lot of leaders being white men and a lot of the consolidation of power looking a very specific way while the workforce in a lot of cases also looks a very specific way. That's not unique to tech, it's not unique to museums. You know, if you look at fashion and um, the sort of distinction between designers and factory workers, or if you look at agriculture and the stereotypical image we have of old McDonald versus who we know historically have actually worked the fields. Right. Um, These these dynamics aren't unique to these sectors, and uh, I I suppose you could call it an epidemic, from that perspective but i I think there's certainly uh it certainly gets exaggerated when power is increased to the degree that it is today in the tech world
0: yeah i wonder how much of it is also a recency bias as in say to to go to museums we also know that there is these sorts of um these same imbalances playing out but in museums they've been established uh you know, institutionally for a long periods of time, whereas we're talking with a lot of these tech companies of reasonably new companies, and so we're maybe able to see um, the effects of this in a far more magnified and dramatic way.
4: I mean, the companies and the technology is recent, but innovation isn't new. You know, like this tech is sort of an extension of. Um, you know the innovations that resulted in uh, electricity and um, mechanical stuff. I mean, I, I obviously don't know much about that sort of thing, but it's an extension of of a much longer history that I, I think we um, often don't um, don't look to uh, for our roots past the mid '90s, uh, maybe the mid '80s, um, and, and I think going back to the. To the letter, um, the, the Google anti-diversity letter, you know, it 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 looks at gender in really binary ways. You know, he, um, he 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 makes distinct and universal categories of men and women that have identical interests and desires and have never changed over time. Right. right. And of course, that's not really how people actually are. So when we talk about masculinity, masculinities in particular, like masculinity is also not a distinct universal category. Um, It's not a universal trait. Masculinities vary by race, by class, by gender, by sexual orientation, by geographical regions of the world, or even of a city, you know? Um, So I think it's important to make a distinction um, between between uh, masculinities that are expressed by people as individuals and masculinity as a construct of learned thoughts and behaviors that enforce patriarchy through the domination of women. And across many expressions of masculinity, across masculinity in many communities, I think here in the United States in particular, because that's where I've spent my whole life, I think I've seen commonalities across a lot of those, um, expressions of masculinity. And I think it's important to talk about that more broader sense of masculinity than it is about the individual level.
1: Yeah. Particularly in this case. So in, in Google's response to the memo, um, their vice president of diversity, um, integrity and governance, um, Danielle Brown said, uh, quote, uh, changing a culture is hard, and it's often uncomfortable. Um, and I think anyone doing progressive museum work knows that. You know, much of the time, change comes down to to culture, um, uh, culture change. So I'm wondering what you think about um, uh, some specific actions that we can take as museum professionals um, within our own institutions to. To make them more supportive of gender equality, um, um, both as places that that we work in as colleagues, but then also um, as places that, that that people visit and people places that people um, uh, find comfortable and 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 uh, welcoming. Yeah, I mean, I
4: I think if I could sort of distill it down to one. It's kind of broad framework to think about this stuff in. I would suggest that, and again, speaking to to other men listening to your show as a man myself, I think we could a framework we can use is thinking about um, dismantling rape culture in our lives and at work. A useful definition of rape culture that uh, Roxane Gay provides in her book, Bad Feminist, is a culture where we're inundated in different ways by the idea that male aggression and violence towards women is acceptable and often inevitable. And violence can look a lot of different ways. There's a great image um, by Ashley Fairbanks that draws out a pyramid of violence where at the base of it is sexist and homophobic and transphobic jokes, problematic languages, and then as problematic language, um, and as you go up the pyramid, um, you know, it goes to this rigid stereotypes, um, traditional gender roles, harassment, rape, and murder. And I think at the at the root of all violence towards women is an erasure of women's lives. And I think there's a lot of ways in which this plays out in tech, and in tech in museums in particular, um, I think pay inequity is a huge part of that, right? It's really well documented that men are paid more than women for doing the same work, but I think it also plays out in how work is distributed. We talked about how management is often men, and in museums, workers are mostly women. But I think it it also, we also see uh, distributions between uh, designers and developers. There's, I I don't have data on this, but from my sort of anecdotal um, experience working as a developer for 20 some odd years, um, I've seen many more women designers and front end developers than I've seen back end server side jobs. And those are the jobs that pay more than designers and front end developers. And when um, women do get development jobs, they're often not treated as nearly as competent as their male counterparts. Because, much like the letter, this distinction plays into the trope that men are more analytical and women are more creative. And when when people move outside of those really distinct categories, they're not taken as seriously. They're, you know, they it, they have to go over many more hurdles just to get the same amount of work done than a man has to go through, um, and it really sells us short because erases, it erases our adaptability as creatures who live on this planet. You know, over the course of the history of this globe humans and creatures have adapted to so many varying situations as the climate has changed to in so many different ways Um, in nature, there's so many examples of um, animals expressing um, genders that they weren't born with like female lions can grow manes if they're put into a position of leadership within their tribe like female lions can can grow manes You know what I mean? So, like, a woman can't be a competent back-end developer? Like, that's just completely ridiculous and goes against everything we know about about humans, people, and this entire planet. So pay inequity, I think, is a big thing. We see it in a few different ways. And two other things uh, that I think we can kind of break it down to is entitlement and the ability for men to speak and be heard. Hmm. And entitlement... it plays out in a few different ways as well. Um, especially in museums where the vast majority are internal users of the applications and the, the awesome tools we build are women. It, this plays out in defining what our scope is during project planning or calling a project finished without implementing the full set of features initially requested for the sake of expediency but often at the cost of complicated workarounds and continued follow up from our end users and things like that but also plays out in um, what can be seen as much more smaller ways like being slow to respond to emails or not keeping our spaces tidy or or not not participating in keeping our shared spaces tidy like kitchens and bathrooms cuz people do have to clean up those spaces not taking care of administrative stuff like submitting our expense reports in a reasonable amount of time or forwarding invoices where I wouldn't get them. There's a lot of different ways in which um, this sense of entitlement can play out. Um, And I think that's another way that we sort of see masculinity and this um, problematic dynamic of power play out in our relationships with people in the workplace. Um, And then finally, the general notion of speaking and being heard and accredited for things that come out of our mouths. That, that doesn't quite answer your question of like what are specific things that we can do. But I think um, before we get into that, it's important to kind of give some context of what it is that we're responding to by yeah. Our actions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things, and you were just starting to touch on this when talking about, um, say, the different value around designers um, versus, say, back-end developers, one of the concerns I think we often talk about when we talk about the dominance of masculinity or men working in technology is thinking about the decisions of which problems to solve and the solutions that are then found, which then tend to favour a much narrower subset of, um, of possible users or of actual users. You know, I, I remember um, in about 2014 there were a number of articles that were talking about how smartphones at the time were really being designed for male hands. There was a, a, a woman, uh, I, I will try and remember her name and put it in the show notes, but she was writing quite a bit around how she actually couldn't use the smartphone she was trying to to document certain things because her hands were not big enough to take a photograph and hold the phone at the same time and she was having these really uh sort of big concerns about this understandably because it was the first time she was sort of uh coming to to have that articulation in a physical sense. And this is obviously one of the reasons we make an argument for having diverse teams in order to bring in multiple perspectives and solve problems more equitably. But it makes me wonder when you're sort of talking about, say, um, that, that accountability within the museum about what we choose to work on and, and how we do that about the roles within the museum. What, what are the concerns then that come out of the fact that certain roles in museums do tend to be gendered, that we do have power accumulating in um, some parts of the museum and not others, that that impacts pay, say education roles are often female and lower paid, and, and of course, then you have front of house staff and so on, which also then brings often in race issues.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'm not familiar with that um, article that you mentioned. That's really interesting. I'm not particularly surprised by it because, you know, if, um, you know, a, a decision trickles up to a leader about, you know, a, a design question. Um, I'm not particularly surprised that that those design decisions would be slanted towards what would be most convenient for men, right? Because like offices are so cold because uh, men in three-piece suits get really hot, you know. But um, women are traditionally not asked to wear the same dress code; they just have to deal with how cold offices are. Uh, So there's a lot of different ways I I think that we can name how um, that. Uh, how how the imbalance of leadership kind of trickles down to um, spaces and the products we build not really working for everybody. And I think part of the challenge is to, like building software is expensive. and until until leaders come to see, that it's actually more valuable to create products that um, work well for a wider range of people than it is to to make them quickly and as cheaply, relatively, right, as possible. Um, We're going to continue to see these sorts of things. So it's a reflection of where our values lie in the process of designing the products that we build and that we're asking our visitors to use and that we use every day.
0: The museum sector is in its hiring practices also skewing uh, as white women. And so are we creating a self-reinforcing culture of only being able to um, think of and appeal to the same audiences that we have traditionally held through those hiring practices?
4: Mm. I never have never really thought of it that way. Yeah. I mean, because in my experience, you know, with the Visitor of Color project, I'm talking to a bunch of people who, for the most part, aren't older white women. Mm. Right, right. Um, So my my perspective of who visits museums and who, um, you know, uses our products, who are typical sort of use cases in my mind is a lot different than that but um but but certainly i can see this sort of cyclical um this cycle that you're that you're supposing might happen if we if our staff is so reflective of who our typical visitor is but i mean i guess i would just challenge you know like there's probably a lot of data saying like yes Um, the majority of our users fit these specific demographic categories, but like, what's the full story? You know, I, I, feel like the numbers, you know, can only tell you one small piece of what you see when you walk through the galleries or what, you know, what makes an impact for a particular person when they leave our doors.
1: Um, Nikhil, how can museums start to grok that full story? You know, what are some ways that, you know, that that museums can start to um, become aware of the full story? Well, I mean,
4: coming back to the question that I didn't quite answer before. Um, you know, using the framework of dismantling rape culture in our lives and in our work, I think there's. You know, I, I put this question out on Twitter um, a few weeks ago, and I'd love to put it in a Storyfy and share it in your show notes if I can. Oh yeah, po- for sure. If I can use podcast lingo for a second. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely.
4: But um, you know, like if I can borrow the the phrase "think local" or "think global." act local, you know, dismantling rape culture in our own lives is a tangible way of participating in in the global fight to end rape and all gender-based violence. And based on, like, the things that I've heard from people in my own life over the course of many years, in addition to the things that people, um, on Twitter suggested, like, there's four things that I think, um, we can put our minds towards, uh, to try to do this work within museums. Um, the first thing is to listen to women. Just listen to women. Ask for their input and listen to it, um, as Lil Miss Fergus said on Twitter. Um, let them finish speaking, as Claire Bletchman said. And um, in uh, at Museums on the Web in 2014, um, there was a, a session on women technology and leadership, and one of the things that three years ago that they suggested men do is acknowledge when you're saying something that women before you have already said. And we saw, we saw something in the, um, by the women, women's staff in Obama's administration um, that they were doing to sort of amplify the perspectives of, of women on his staff. And I think they called it amplification. And it was like, It was a a thing that they did in group meetings, and staff meetings, where when a woman made a key point, other women in the group would repeat that same point and give them credit as a way to amplify, literally, um, the voices of women in the room. And I think as men sort of recognizing when we're saying something that a woman has already said, even if it's like five minutes after they said it in a meeting, um, just naming and giving credit to the person who, um, who, who said that thing. Because this is one small way of erasing women's lives, right? And by giving voice and giving credit to the person who, who said it before us, we're um, slowly working on unerasing those lives. Um, part of listening to women, we can take a beat before we speak and make sure that other voices at the table have had a chance to speak. Um, when, when I facilitate workshops we often put this um, common agreement out there to step up and step back, where if you're a person who tends to speak a lot, um, try to take a beat and step back and uh, you know one rule that sometimes people keep in their minds is to let two other people speak before I speak. And on the opposite side of it, step up. If you're a person who um, doesn't often speak in group situations, be brave, try to challenge yourself and share your thinking because no one in the universe has the same intersections of identities as you do and therefore will not have the same perspectives and thoughts as you and we value them, so please share them. So I think you know if you're a man who tends to need to step back, take that as an opportunity to step back and listen to women. And I think um, one last piece about listening to women, Anna Costner said, um, pay attention to the meetings women aren't in. And I think that begs for the hashtag all male meetings as kind of a riff on all male panels. Um, pay Pay attention to meetings where they're all men and ask whether we should be having them.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It goes to that that final point of you know who's in the room goes back to again that question we were just talking about around who's designing the products and who's deciding which problems to solve. You know, deciding which is the problem that this that your institution should be addressing, whether it's which app should we create or which exhibition should we we do. Um, I think they're the same thing of who's in the room and who's actually making those decisions. Um, Nikhil we are just about to to wrap up but there's a question that I really wanted to ask Um, as you as you know this episode we are we are doing this question around the gendered museum to coincide with the impending birth of my child and so I've been thinking a lot about um, how becoming a mother and a parent is going to impact my career, but I think we talk a lot less about parenthood and how it impacts uh, fathers or other caretakers who are looking after small children. Um, you became a father a few years ago, and I'd really love to just hear how it's impacted your museum work and the way you think about your career and the way you think about how you're addressing these kinds of issues.
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm so excited about, happy Labor Day, by the way. We just, <laughs> uh, it's the week after Labor Day right now.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if it's gonna be the other sort of Labor Day for for a little while there. but uh. <laughs>
4: <laughs> It's still labor nonetheless. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think p- parenting was such an interesting um, way to think about some of this stuff. When my partner and I were pregnant, we were trying to, think think about how to equally distribute caretaking duties between the two of us um, as we were preparing to have a baby as well as afterwards. And my partner gave birth, she um, she nursed, uh, so there were certainly things that I couldn't take the equal share of. But um, in the ways that I could, we uh, we both reduced our work down to part-time for the first period of his life uh, as a way for us to both kind of keep continuing working and being home with our kiddo. Because we didn't want one of us to be working full-time and the other to be home because we both valued our jobs, we both valued our careers, and we wanted to do both. So for the first year and a half of my kid's life, I worked part-time. And I feel super grateful to my institution for giving me that flexibility. And I also kind of feel I'm super grateful to my boss and my boss's boss. And, um, you know, I've worked there for 12 years or 11 years or something like that. So I've built really close relationships to the people who supervise me. So, not to sort of say anything bad about them, but I, I, I do feel like I probably wouldn't have been given as much flexibility if I were a woman to ask for the same thing. I, I think men are generally given a lot more flexibility with, you know, work schedules and with particularly around parenting. You know, women have such a hard time taking time off when their kids are sick or, you know, d- d- doing the sorts of things that, um, that we think about, you know, being around for a kid when they're having a hard time or when we just want to be with them. Um, women have a lot more pressure to sort of like perform at work and not let parenting get in the way of their careers and men I feel like when we do ask for stuff it's sort of seen as like oh wow that's great you should totally do that you know we're given a lot more freedom and flexibility to do stuff like that so I recognized that and I sort of felt like you know maybe if I could figure this out maybe that would open up a little bit of space for someone else in my institution to Work out something similar, you know. If, if I can try to maybe set a precedence for someone else to lean on, if they were trying to ask for some flexibility to try to figure something else out. But that was just an amazing period of my life, just to be home with my kiddo two days a week, just me and him. I got to see, I got to see a lot of first things that he did. Um, we got to just build a really close relationship with each other. That. I wouldn't have been able to do if I was working full time. And that was something that was important to me because um, my relationship with my own father has not been a close one over the course of my life. So I wanted, um, it was important to me to do what I, to do as much as I felt like I could do to make sure that I was building a close bond with my kiddo and sustaining that um, over the course of his life. and that year and a half certainly built a great foundation for us
1: that sounds so awesome yeah Um, that's really amazing (laughs) um Nikhil I think uh, we've taken enough of your time away from that beautiful family so um (laughs) we're gonna wrap up but before we do we'll drop links to everything we talked about in the show notes but if listeners want to get in touch with you um Twitter's the best place where can they do that
4: Twitter's the best place um you can also uh drop me an email on my website, Um
1: But I'm on Twitter. Twitter's probably the best place. Sounds good. Uh, Nikhil, thanks again so much. I think this discussion has been really great. It's going to um, uh, hopefully uh, shine some interesting light on this, on this topic. So thank you so much for your openness.
4: Yeah, thank you. I feel like there's probably so much more that all three of us could say regarding all this stuff. Um, but it was great to try to put my mind towards this, um, for this episode. And thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Suze, uh, some great interviews there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There is so much to dig into as always, I think on this on this show, I always find myself going in different directions, and it was so nice to hear from uh, Anne, Joan, and Nikhil and get really different perspectives on these issues.
1: Yeah, um, and Nikhil uh, actually sent through um, uh, uh, some resources that we'll post in the in the show notes um, in case listeners want to dig a little bit deeper, um, uh, get a little bit more informed about any of this Um We'll, we'll post all his, his links and resources um, at museopunks.org. Um, Suze, if uh, listeners want to connect with us on the Twitters, can they do that?
0: Oh, they can definitely do that. And in fact, we would welcome that. If you want to connect with us on the Twitters, uh, we are just at Museopunks. And uh, of course, you know, our website, museopunks.org. We also have to thank our presenting sponsor who always supports us and does so so wonderfully we are presented every month by the american alliance of museums and we are very grateful for that support
1: thank you aam uh one last thing before we wrap it up um Mm -hmm. Reviews on iTunes, if, if you like us, if you listen to us, um, reviews on iTunes help immensely with discoverability. So we would really appreciate a, a star review a star rating or, a, or if you have the time and inclination to uh, tell people what you think about the podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It, it also helps to tell us what you think about the podcast. We are always welcome to hear your ideas and to think about how we can incorporate them into the show ourselves.
1: For sure. Suze, another episode in the can.
0: In the can. Fantastic. Jeffrey, uh, by the time we uh, next speak, I may may have a little kid. So uh, <laughs> I, I look forward to the adventures that that holds.
1: Uh, will, will she be the first guest?
0: <laughs> if we can uh manage to uh, corral her into uh making noise at the right time and not the wrong time sure
1: all right Suze. we'll be uh we'll be following along good luck and enjoy the, your first uh days of motherhood
0: ah okay bye